and welcome to the Narrow Road Podcast, a place to share the journey of walking with God on the narrow road that leads to life. I hope that you find rest and encouragement here, but above all, the awareness that you're not alone on the way. Hello, hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Narrow Road Podcast. I'm your host, Rachel Bowyer, and it's my pleasure to be back with you for another episode. Today, we are finishing out the short little three-part series on solitude, on the power of solitude as a necessary part of walking with God on this narrow road that we are walking on together. And it has been profound because we've been sort of talking through a resource um, in the form of a very, very small, almost devotional, meditative devotional type book by Henry Nouwen called Out of Solitude. And it's so profound. He's such an eloquent and incredible writer. He um, actually, I, I think I've been talking about him in the present tense as if he were still with us. And unfortunately, he is not. He actually passed away in 1996. Um But he was a Catholic priest, mostly based in the Toronto area. Um, He wrote more than 40 books, um, many of them bestsellers. He taught at the University of Notre Dame, as well as Yale and Harvard. And um, yeah, he died in 1996. he up until his death, he was part of the La Arche Daybreak community in Toronto, where he shared his life with people with developmental disabilities. So he's just oh my goodness, he's absolutely a fascinating person. In fact, the Life of the Beloved book that I constantly reference of his that was just so life changing for me to le- to listen to and to read. Um, he talks so much about the people with developmental disabilities that he works with as just these just incredible conduits for the presence and power of God and the ways that they would challenge him and grow him. And it's, it's just incredible. So it goes to show that that book, The Life of the Beloved, was written while he was there. So that would have been in some of his latter years of life. Um, he's just incredible. Henry Nouwen, H-E-N-R-I and last name Nowen, N-O-U-W-E-N. If you haven't heard of him before, I just highly recommend you look up his work and and read it. It is usually very short. It is very, just very illuminating. Super helpful, I have found, in navigating and giving language to the narrow way, giving language to my own walk with God, and sort of chipping away at the overcomplications of it, that over complexity of it that we like to do as humans and just chipping it down to the simple gospel. And I think he just does a brilliant job of that. And and to be fair, when you study the life of Jesus, as we've just done, we've just come off of about a month long series of studying Jesus's life, you see that Jesus made it actually really simple. He made everything about walking with him really, really simple. And what has happened for thousands of years since his death is humans have added to it, they've taken away from it, and they've made it so much more complicated, which we are absolute suckers for. We love to make rules and religion out of relationship. We love to do it. So when I find a modern day Christian, a modern author who can strip it all back and make it really, really simple and really, really clear that the Christian life, that the life of following Jesus is 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 
just, it's genuinely so much about love and so much about service. We both love and serve our God and we love and serve one another. And, you know, that was Jesus's life summed up. That was his example summed up. It's pretty simple, really. And, um, and so I'm drawn to someone who, who can, who can show it (laughs) for what it is, as simple as it really, really is. Um, when it comes to the day to day of, of being with him on the narrow road. So I hope you've enjoyed this just little teeny tiny series. I thought it was a great way to segue off of that huge study on Jesus's life that we've just completed. And, uh, we'll see where we go from here. So today we're doing our last meditation of the three. So the first meditation was solitude, the second meditation was care, and the third meditation is expectation today. So we're going to read through this together and and sort of discuss it at the very end. So uh, let's let's dive right in. Alrighty, so I'm Diving into this third meditation here and out of solitude. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus said to his disciples, In a short time you will no longer see me, and then a short time later you will see me again. Then some of his disciples said to one another, What does he mean, in a short time you will no longer see me, and then a short time later you will see me again? What is this short time? We don't know what he means. Jesus knew what they wanted to question him about, so he said, You are asking one another what I meant by saying, In a short time you will no longer see me, and then in a short time you'll see me again. In all truth I tell you, you will be weeping and wailing while the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. A woman in childbirth suffers because her time has come, but when she has given birth to the child, she forgets that suffering in her joy, that a human being has been born into the world. So it is with you. You are sad now, but I shall see you again, and your hearts will be full of joy, and that joy no one shall take from you. John chapter 16, verses 16 through 22. Care born out of solitude can hardly last unless undergirded by a hopeful expectation for the day of fulfillment when God will be all in all. Without expectation, care easily degenerates into a morbid preoccupation with pain and gives more occasion for common complaints than for the formation of community. But Jesus sets us free from self-complaint by pointing beyond the short time of care to the great day of joy. In a short time, you will no longer see me, and then a short time later, you will see me again. You are sad now, but your hearts will be full of joy, and that joy no one shall take from you. Our life is a short time in expectation, a time in which sadness and joy kiss each other at every moment. There is a quality of sadness that pervades all the moments of our life. It seems that there is no such thing as clear-cut, pure joy, but that even in the most happy moments of our existence, we sense a tinge of sadness. In every satisfaction, there is an awareness of its limitations. In every success, there is the fear of jealousy. Behind every smile, there is a tear. In every embrace, there is loneliness, and every friendship, distance, and in all forms of light, there is the knowledge of surrounding darkness. Joy and sadness are as close to each other as the splendid colored leaves of a New England fall to the soberness of the barren trees. When you touch the hand of a returning friend, you already know that he will have to leave you again. When you're moved by the quiet vastness of a sun-covered ocean, you miss the friend who cannot see the same. 
Joy and sadness are born at the same time, both arising from such deep places in your heart that you can't find words to capture your complex emotions. But this intimate experience, in which every bit of life is touched by a bit of death, can point us beyond the limits of our existence. It can do so, do so by making us look forward in expectation to the day when our hearts will be filled with perfect joy, a joy that no one shall take away from us. Let me, therefore, now reflect on expectation, first about expectation as patience, and then about expectation as joy. The mother of expectation is patience. The French author Simone Weil writes in her notebooks, waiting patiently in expectation is the foundation of the spiritual life. Without patience, our expectation degenerates into wishful thinking. Patience comes from the word patior, which means to suffer. The first thing that Jesus promises is suffering. I tell you, you will be weeping and wailing, and you will be sorrowful. But he calls these pains birth pains. And so what seems a hindrance becomes a way. What seems an obstacle becomes a door. What seems a misfit becomes a cornerstone. Jesus changes our history from a random series of sad incidents and accidents into a constant opportunity for a change of heart. To wait patiently, therefore, means to allow our weeping and wailing to become the purifying preparation by which we are made ready to receive the joy which is promised to us. A few years ago, I met an old professor at the University of Notre Dame. Looking back on his long life of teaching, he said with a funny twinkle in his eye, I have always been complaining that my work was constantly interrupted until I slowly discovered that my interruptions were my work. That is the great conversion in our life, to recognize and believe that the many unexpected events are not just disturbing interruptions of our projects, but the way in which God molds our hearts and prepares us for his return. Our great temptations are boredom and bitterness. When our good plans are interrupted by poor weather or our well-organized careers by illness or bad luck, our peace of mind by inner turmoil, our hope for peace by a new war, our desire for a stable government by a constant changing of the guards, and our desire for immortality by real death, we are tempted to give in to a paralyzing boredom or to strike back in destructive bitterness. But when we believe that patience can make our expectations grow, then fate can be converted into a vocation, wounds into a call for deeper understanding, and sadness into a birthplace of joy. I would like to tell you the story of a middle-aged man whose career was suddenly interrupted by the discovery of leukemia, a fatal blood cancer. All his life plans crumbled, and all his ways had to change. But slowly, he was able to ask himself no longer, why did this happen to me? What did I do wrong to deserve this fate? But instead, what is the promise hidden in this event? When his rebellion became a new quest, he felt that he could give strength and hope to other cancer patients, and that, by facing his condition directly, he could make his pain into a source of healing for others. To this day, this man not only does more for patients than many ministers are able to do, but he also refound his life on a level that he had never known before. Whereas patience is the mother of expectation, it is expectation itself that brings new joy to our lives. Jesus not only made us look at our pains, but also beyond them. 
You are sad now, but I shall see you again, and your hearts will be full of joy. A man or a woman without hope in the future cannot live creatively in the present. The paradox of expectation, indeed, is that those who believe in tomorrow can better live today, that those who expect joy to come out of sadness can discover the beginnings of a new life in the center of the old, that those who look forward to the returning Lord can discover Him already in their midst. You know how a letter can change your day. When you watch people in front of the wall of mailboxes, you can see how a small piece of paper can change the expression on a face, can make a curved back straight, and a sullen mouth whistle again. The day might be just as dull as the day before, and the work just as tiring, but the letter in your mailbox tells you that someone loves you, that someone is looking forward to meeting you again, that someone needs your presence, or that someone promises to come soon, and it makes all the difference. A life lived in expectation is like a life in which we have received a letter, a letter which makes him whom we have missed so much return even earlier than we can imagine. Expectation brings joy to the center of our sadness and the loved one to the heart of our longings. The one who stayed with us in the past and will return to us in the future becomes present to us in the precious moment in which memory and hope touch each other. At that moment, we can realize that we can only expect someone because he has already touched us. A student from California who had to leave many of his good friends behind to come to school at the faraway East Coast recently said to me, It was hard to depart, but if the goodbye is not painful, the hello cannot be joyful either. And so his sadness of September became his joy at Christmas time. Is God present or is he absent? Maybe we can say now that in the center of our sadness for his absence, we can find the first signs of his presence, and that in the middle of our longings, we discover the footprints of the one who has created them. It is in the faithful waiting for the loved one that we know how much he has filled our lives already. Just as the love of a mother for her son can grow while she is waiting for his return, and just as lovers can rediscover each other during long periods of absence, so also our intimate relationship with God can become deeper and more mature while we wait patiently in expectation for his return. In a short time you will no longer see me, and then in a short time later you will see me again. We're living in this short time. We can live in it creatively when we live it out of solitude, i.e. detached from the results of our work, and when we live it with care, i.e. crying with those who weep and wail, but it is the expectation of his return which molds our solitude and care into a preparation for the day of great joy. This is what we express when we take bread and wine in thanksgiving. We do not eat bread to still our hunger or drink wine to quench our thirst. We just eat a little bit of bread and drink a little bit of wine in the realization that God's presence is the presence of the one who came, but is still to come, who touched our hearts but has not yet taken all our sadness away. And so, when we share some bread and some wine together, we do this not as people who have arrived, but as men and women who can support each other in patient expectation until we see him again. And then our hearts will be full of joy, a joy that no one can take away from us. What a beautiful conclusion. He so intimately and intricately links these three medica medications, <laughs> meditations together at the end of this short little devotional in such a gorgeous way. 
He ends it with our expectation of the return of Christ, which is both suffering in terms of the patience and endurance it requires to wait on him, and joyful in the ways that when it is fulfilled, what a joy it will be. I love how he says that when we are living in the short time that Jesus refers to when he will return, he says we can live in it creatively when we live it out of our solitude, detached from the results of our work. That's so interesting how he sees it like that, that solitude is a creative space. That solitude away from other people, that solitude with God, gives us the ability to live creatively, detached from the results of our work. And that's where creativity comes from. Is that what he's alluding to there? That when you're detached from how good you are, how many accomplishments you've made, how successful you've been, how much more successful you need to be to live up to your own legend, when you can detach yourselves from that, it is in that space that you can live creatively. And that's interesting to me. It's interesting to me. It's almost like he's saying there's a lack of creativity to being obsessed with your own results, obsessed with your own work, obsessed with your own success. It's not creative. Creativity is to just say, ah, that's not the point. The point is something deeper than what I have or haven't done. And as we learned that solitude can create the capacity for care because as we look at ourselves, when we live our lives obsessed with action, obsessed with taking ground and all the things that the world labels as successful, when we live in that space, from that space, we become very sort of narcissistic, become very selfish. We're looking at ourselves, we're measuring ourselves, we're comparing ourselves, we're maybe hurting ourselves, abusing ourselves emotionally over how much more we need to do to be worthy, to be whatever, whatever, whatever. And when we separate ourselves from action and we step into the place of solitude, he's saying it is a creative space. But we also learned that it is a space where we gain that capacity to care, the capacity that we don't otherwise have when we're only looking at ourselves. The ability to actually sit with people in their pain and cry with them, sit with people in their joy and celebrate with them. We have space to look beyond ourself and our circumstances. And he says that when we live in this short time between when Jesus died and when Jesus returns, when we live in that short time, we live it with care. Um, this is a space where we put our expectation and our eyes and our thoughts and our worries and concerns on other people. We cry with those who weep and wail. I think it's interesting this progression that he's even showing in these meditations. The first meditation is dealing with yourself. Drawing yourself away in solitude is dealing with yourself, dealing with your stuff, your needs, your actual deep needs. Then he moves into care, which is, is dealing with other people, putting your interest and focus on other people. And then he ends with expectation for God's coming, essentially, and he's putting it on Jesus. He's putting our attention on the Lord. So you see that flow of you've got to look at yourself, then you can help other people. And now we look at Jesus. Now we look to Jesus and that he is the ultimate point. He says it is the expectation of his return, 
which molds our solitude and care into a preparation for the day of great joy. That solitude when we get away with him and that care that we express to others is how we are preparing for the day of great joy, how we are preparing for his coming, how they work in tandem. That space of solitude with the Father and that expressed care for those around us is how we are preparing our hearts and souls. You want to know how to develop fruit? This is how you develop fruit in your life. Caring about other people in a genuine way and spending time alone with the Father. (laughs) Like, it's simple. It's really simple again. Very, very simple. And he was so eloquent to stress to us that caring for other people means to actually care for them, not just cure them, not just fix the problem, but actually attach our hearts to their situation, to actually feel it with them. And you can't do that. You really don't, no matter what you think of yourself. You don't actually have the capacity to do that, to really feel what's going on in someone's life and and care about it on a true level without that time in solitude where God breaks down your defenses and he sets free your heart to feel vulnerability. Oh, it's so, so, so good. He says in one of his um, earlier Uh, paragraphs in this meditation on expectation he says is god present or is he absent maybe we can say now that in the center of our sadness for his absence we can find the first signs of his presence Ooh, i don't know that makes me like want to cry that sentence there maybe we can say now that in the sentence in the sentence in the center of our sadness for his presence we can find the first signs of his presence. Maybe we can say now that in the center of our sadness for his absence, maybe I can read today, <laughs> we can find the first signs of his presence. Mm. In the center of our ache for him, we can find the first signs of his presence. Oh man, I just think that that's so good. And I feel like that's speaking to me because I've talked a lot at different times throughout this podcast journey that, you know, living in a foreign country in a very different spiritual environment, very different sense of community, and oftentimes no community at all, um, that I have ached for his presence in a way I have never ached before because it has, it has felt so far from me, so intangible in a way I had never been able to o- not overcome. But how he says, um, in the center of our sadness, for his absence. So he's acknowledging that we ache and he's taking that right from that scripture where Jesus says, you're going to be sad. <laughs> like you're going to be sad and sorrowful for a while. But then in a little while, I'm going to return and your joy is going to be full. So he's, he's acknowledging our sadness about the absence of God. That it's a very, very real thing. And we all feel it. <laughs> At some time or another, we all feel it. But he says, maybe in that center place, that center sadness, as we ache and long for him, we can find the first signs of his presence. And I have never looked at it like that. I have never looked at it like that, that the more I ache for him, perhaps the more easy to see him it is. (laughs) 
Maybe that even in the ache, there he is? Maybe he's the ache entirely? Oh, I don't know. This is dimensional. You know, this is multifaceted. Where could I go with this? You know, I'm somebody who like reads really deeply into things like super philosophically and I could take that somewhere, <laughs> maybe deeper than it's meant to go. See my addiction to complexity here? And then he continues by saying, and that in the middle of our longings, we discover the footprints of the one who has created them. In the middle of our longings, ooh, we discover the footprints of the one who has created them. He's created the longing that creates the sadness when he's far away. <laughs> like, it's just, oh my goodness, how redemptive, how beautiful. It is in the faithful waiting for the loved one that we know how much he has filled our lives already. Oof. Just as the love of a mother for her son can grow while she is waiting for his return, just as lovers can rediscover each other during long periods of absence, so also our intimate relationship with God can become deeper and more mature while we wait patiently in expectation for his return. Mm. That's so, so, so good. It's so good. You know, he's really just getting at, with this little study, he's really just getting at the reality. He's he's acknowledging how it feels when you don't have God's manifest presence with you 24-7. How it feels, how you cope. And he says, you, you still choose solitude because the addiction to action will always be there and it'll always be calling to you to stay busy and stay action-oriented, um, to, to ignore your longing to deny your sadness. And he's calling us into a place of solitude. Choose it anyway. Choose it anyway. He's calling us into a place of care that solitude forms in us where we look outside of ourselves and we devote ourselves to those around us. But he doesn't want us to stay in care for care's sake because, as he said, then we can become obsessed with death and doom and sadness. And, and that's not good either. You don't want to just stay in a place of care, but you are caring for a reason. Because your care for others is a manifestation of your expectation for the father who set the highest example of care. It is our preparation act. These are our preparation acts. These are our moments of fruit bearing that we do. This is what it looks like to stay in the vine, to abide, is to live a life of solitude, care, and expectation. And I love it. It's simple. It's to the point. It's to the point. And he says, inside of this understanding, our intimate relationship with God can become deeper and more mature while we wait patiently in expectation for his return. The sorrow of patience, the joy of expectation. Yeah. Anyway, that is that little study. <laughs> um, I'd be really curious on your feedback. <clears throat> How are you doing with, with a pursuit of solitude, an acceptance of solitude? Do you feel the, the lure of action and self-measurement and living up to your own legend? Do you feel the pull towards that? Or, or do you find um, that you just, you love, you ache for solitude, you, you get so much from it? Has the solitude that you've cultivated in your life 
resulted in deeper care for others? Have you seen that? Have you seen, can you compare who you were before you practiced solitude or the secret place or the wilderness or the loneliness with God? Before you started practicing that, can you compare who you were in terms of how much you genuinely cared for people versus how much you now care for people inside of a practice of solitude? What does care look like for you? How do you practice caring? Do you find that you fall into the trap of curing without caring, fixing the problem, doing things begrudgingly for others that they need, but it isn't from a place of servant-heartedness where you're connected to their pain, their need, their, their, their joy even? What, is, what does care look like for you in your life? And how do you weave? Do you see the weaving together of care and solitude uh, into preparation for his coming? Do you see how it bears fruit? How it should build our expectation towards the Lord? And do you see that in the center of your sadness for his absence, that maybe that's right where he is? Oh, that he is there in that sadness, that in the middle of our longings, we discover the footprints of the one who created them in the first place. Oh my goodness, I love that so much. I love that so much. Your longing is a sign of how much you love. Your longing is a sign of how much he's done for you, how much he has actually changed your life. You would have nothing to ache for and long for if he wasn't a true friend to you. And that's so beautiful. It changes the way we see it, right? Instead of what I was saying a couple of days ago on the podcast, what have I done wrong? What's changed in my life? What's going on? What's happening? It's not so much about why am I longing? It's actually, what if I celebrated that I long for him? (laughs) What if I let that be evidence of how deeply we love each other? Man, oh man. Because you can't have a joyful reunion without a goodbye. You can't... uh, you know, he talked about that student who left university, or excuse me, left home from California to go to the frigid East Coast. And, but he saw the beauty of being able to say goodbye. It was hard to depart, but if the goodbye is not painful, the hello cannot be joyful either. And so his sadness of September became his joy at Christmas time. Oh, beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Yeah, so just to encourage you, Jesus is in your longing. His presence is there with you right now, no matter where you are on the narrow road. We may not be able to walk it one by or two by two, three by three on the narrow road. It is narrow, but Jesus does walk it with us. We may not be able to walk with others all the time. Solitude requires that we sacrifice some of our time with others to be alone with him. But Jesus commits to walk that narrow way with us every single day. Never alone. And that those longings are evidence of just how near and dear to him we actually are. So I thank you for listening to this episode of the Narrow Road Podcast. And I will be back with you tomorrow, as usual, for another episode of the podcast. We're continuing on 365 days of podcasting. If you have any questions, thoughts, feedback, um, perspective, you have ideas for episodes, questions, anything, email me at thenarrowroadblog 
at gmail.com. That is the narrow road blog at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. Love your thoughts and feedback. Um, and we're going to keep going uh, on this journey. Thank you so much for listening and bye-bye.